When I sat yesterday evening after doing a body scan in the afternoon, my face felt swollen and bruised as though from a beating. Uh, this calls some aversion, yeah. <laughs> also trepidation about repeating the body scan. Yes, I would think so. Uh, would you recommend insight practice on this? Yes, definitely. See if you can investigate what's going on. Uh, I'd say try the body scan again and see what happens. If you get the same sort of result, I'd say, okay, you can forget about the body scan. Uh, but it could be unrelated. I, I've never heard of anything like this. People do occasionally, when doing the body scan, get some sort of release that seems to leave something kind of weird going on. But that's usually a one-time thing. But I never heard of anything this extreme, so... I don't know. Is the cessation of craving possible if one is craving for basic needs to be met, that is, food, companionship, if one is isolated, etc.? Probably not. Uh, it really seems that if you're going to have success on the path of practice that the Buddha has outlined, you need to have the basics, food, clothing, shelter, medicine taken care of. If you're struggling for that, you're not going to have the energy, the time, the inclination to do the practices to overcome craving. So companionship, well, the Buddha says the whole of the spiritual path is noble friends and noble conversations. So I think you'll definitely need some of that around to overcome craving. So yeah, if there's craving at a basic level, that's going to need to be met. Otherwise, it's not going to be possible, I don't think. It's hard enough as it is. So why do we die? I don't mean heart disease or cancer or stepping in front of a bus. I mean, why do we die? I mean, if you were making it up, would you make it up that we died? I mean, think about it. You get born. That's pretty traumatic. Then you got to do the diaper thing. When you finally get over that, you're just beginning to learn to have fun, and they ship you off to school for, what, 12, 16, 20, 24 years. And you get out of school... And they make you go to work. And you work for 40 years. And finally, finally, you can relax and have some fun and you're dead. I mean, what's going on here? Why is it like this? Uh, could we be doing some? Could we not have forgotten to do something that maybe we should have done? I mean, is, is there something maybe that we can do that will prevent this from happening? I mean, suppose we were to hang a lot of crystals in the window, and no, they did that in California, and they're still dying. Uh, maybe we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. Do you realize that 90% of the people that ever ate food are dead? So, no, that's not going to work. Well, one thing's for sure. Uh, if you don't get born, you don't die. 
And if you get born, you die. Of course, that only raises the question, why do we get born? And I don't mean the gleam in your father's eye. I mean, why bother being born if you're just going to wind up dead? But being born's a popular thing to do. You know, like everybody I know did it. In the springtime, the birds are doing it, the bees are doing it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big thing. It seems that Mother Nature sort of has an urge for becoming. This becoming, this urge to become, produces all these births, and then eventually aging, sickness, death. So this becoming, where does becoming come from? Well, this didn't used to be a meditation hall. It didn't used to be a building. Uh, used to be, well, wood, glass, metal, plaster, probably out here in the yard or something, right? Maybe back there. And then they put the pieces together. So the pieces sticking together. The clinging together of the pieces produces the becoming. So clinging seems to be what's necessary for becoming. And that leads to birth and death. So this clinging, what's that about? Well, what do you cling to? I mean, think about it. What's, what's the stuff you're clinging to? It's probably the good stuff, right? The old worn-out stuff, nah, you let that go. But the good stuff, yeah, the stuff you really want. So if, if we crave something and we get it, then we cling to it. And that clinging produces becoming birth and death. All right, craving. What's that about? Well, what do you crave? Chocolate ice cream? Why do you crave it? Uh, because you know it's such a healthy food, right? No, that's not why you crave it. Because you know it'll make you fat? No. Because it's brown? No, no. You crave it because it tastes good. In other words, it generates pleasant vedna when you put it in your mouth. The pleasant vedna are why you crave. If you get unpleasant vedna, you crave for the absence of whatever's making the unpleasant vedna. And this craving leads to clinging, becoming birth and death. All right, so these vedna, where do they come from? Well, the Vedna that you're after doesn't occur when you're in the grocery store and you see the ice cream in the freezer. It doesn't occur when you put it in your shopping cart. It doesn't occur when you pay for it. It doesn't occur when you put it on the counter at home. Those Vedna don't occur when you put it in the bowl. The Vedna occur when the ice cream hits the tongue, when there's contact. The contact is necessary for the Vedna. And when the Vedna arise, if you're not careful, you're going to wind up craving and that's going to lead to clinging, becoming birth and death. 
So this contact, well, that arises because you left your senses hanging out in the environment. I mean, you go around, your senses are just out there in the environment and they're going to be sense contacts happening. I mean, you're sitting here in this room and you want it to be quiet, but unfortunately you left your ears hanging out there and so you hear the sounds. If you're eating, well, you left your taste buds in the way of the food and you're going to taste it and it's going to produce Vedna. Because we have senses then there's going to be sense contacts and that's going to produce the Vedna that if you're not careful leads to craving, clinging, becoming birth and death. So what about these senses? (laughs) Well, that's part of having a working mind and body. A working mind and body without senses is not possible. You need the senses to be able to keep the mind and body actually functioning. You need to see to avoid obstacles, to find the good stuff, to hear things, to taste things. I mean, you've got to have these senses. Without them, it just doesn't work. It's senseless. And having senses, there are going to be contacts which are going to produce Vedna, which, unless you're really careful, is going to lead to craving clean becoming birth and death. Well, this mind and body. Well, for sure, your mind and body is not going to work very well unless you're conscious. An unconscious mind and body, well, ceases working fairly short order. Well, you can force feed it with intravenous strip or something, but basically, without consciousness, the mind and body doesn't work. Mind and body is dependent on consciousness and the senses are part of having a mind and body and they're going to have contacts and that's going to produce Vedana which might lead to craving clean becoming birth and death. So uh, consciousness. Well it would appear that consciousness arises due to the interaction of mind and body. Uh, we're not really very aware of any consciousness happening only if there's a body and no mind. And we're not really aware of consciousness happening if there's a mind and no body. Well, no, this is England. You've got ghosts around here. Maybe you've seen something like that. But, you know, it's not a common occurrence. So it looks like you've got to have a mind and a body, and their interaction is what generates the consciousness, which actually is necessary for the mind and body to function properly. They are interdependent. Each is dependent on the other. If you remove consciousness, then the mind and body doesn't work very well, soon ceases to function. If you remove mind and body, then the consciousness disappears. So they're interdependent. Having a working mind and body that's conscious, there are going to be senses getting sense contacts. That's going to produce Vedana, which unless you're careful, is going to produce craving, clinging, becoming, birth, old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, and all the rest of the dukkha. This is dependent origination, paticca samapada. 
In one sutta, Sariputta quotes the Buddha as saying, he who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. He who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. This is really the heart of the Buddha's teachings. The way that I presented dependent origination is in the so-called reverse order. That is, looking at the result and trying to see what a necessary condition was for the arising of the result, sort of working backwards. And I presented it with 10 links. Sometimes you see it with 12 links or 9 links or various numbers. The sutta that I took this presentation from comes from the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected or thematic discourses, from Book 12, which contains some 90-something suttas on dependent origination. This is sutta number 65. In that sutta, the Buddha says that this is what he discovered on the night of his enlightenment. This makes sense. Remember this guy has just eaten this very nice rice pudding that Sujata gave him, and he's made the determination he's going to sit there till he figures out what to do about old age, sickness, and death, or the flesh rots from his bones. So he gets his mind concentrated via the jhanas, and then he asks himself, why do we die? Because we're born. Why do we get born? And he works backwards through these ten links. This apparently was the insight that led to his breakthrough. And the Four Noble Truths, at least the first three of them, are summaries of some of the key points of dependent origination. The first of the Noble Truths, Dukkha Happens, basically is, if you get born into this realm, you will experience old age, sickness, and death. It's the last two links going in the forward order. That the cause of craving, or that craving is uh, the cause of dukkha, or that dukkha is conditioned by craving, is a summary of the links craving, clinging, becoming, birth, old age, sickness, and death. And the cessation of dukkha occurs with the cessation of craving. Craving is a necessary condition for dukkha to arise. If you can prevent the necessary condition for anything, you prevent the result. Now, as I mentioned, sometimes dependent origination is given with 12 links. The other two links come earlier in the chain, the first link being ignorance and the next one being, well, the word is sankhara. You sometimes see it translated as karmic formations in the context of dependent origination. Sankhara is the word I was translating as mental formations or mental activity earlier today when we were talking about the khandas. Sankara is also used to mean compounded things. In other words, it's a word that gets translated differently 
depending on the context. However, the Buddha used only a single word, sankara, in all those contexts. And it turns out there are actually two quite good English translations of sankara that work in all those contexts. From Ajahn Buddha Dasa via Santikaro, concoctions. And from Tanasaru Bhikkhu, fabrications. So we could say that out of ignorance, we concoct the things that we become conscious of, that consciousness animating our mind and body, which has senses, etc. The most famous depiction of dependent origination is the so-called Tibetan Wheel of Life. It's a circle with a number of concentric circles within it, like a bullseye, a, a target. Usually the Wheel of Life is being held by Yama, the Lord of Death. You see his fangs and face up at the 12 o'clock position and his claws at 10 and 2 and his feet down at 5 and 7 and his tail swishing back and forth at 6. And this wheel has on it, as I say, all these rings. In the bullseye position in the center, there's a rooster, a snake, and a pig, each biting the tail of the other. The rooster is greed, the snake is hatred, and the pig is delusion. In the next ring, there are beings coming out of states of woe into good states and then falling back down into states of woe. The next ring is generally the ring that takes up more of the painting than any of the others, and it depicts the six realms of existence. Buddhism has a very elaborate cosmology, uh, actually there's 30-something realms, but they're sometimes condensed down into six, particularly if you're going to paint them all. The bottom realm is the hell realms, plural, and these are depicted in ways that Dante would be quite proud of. You know, people being boiled alive or walking through forests where all the leaves are swords or, you know the usual depictions of hell. Above that is the realm of the hungry ghosts, beings that in their previous incarnation were very greedy, and now they've been reborn with giant bellies and very tiny throats. Can't get enough. Also in the lower realms are the warring gods, the asuras, beings who are always fighting it would seem that they own a large five-sided building just south of Washington, D.C. Then there's the animal realm, the only realm that we normally see other than the human realm. And then the human realm, and the artist has fun, you know, drawing people, doing human things, you know, working the fields, picking fruit, making food, making baskets, all that sort of stuff. And then at the top are the heavenly realms. I think there's 27 of them, but they're all depicted as one. And it's the usual stuff, you know, people sitting around on clouds. Well, they're not playing harps, they're playing lutes, but, you know, eating really nice ambrosia. The usual, you know, your usual heaven, your run-of-the-mill heaven stuff. But the most important ring is the outer ring, which contains the 12 links of dependent origination. Up at the 12 o'clock position is ignorance, 
which is depicted by an old blind person making their way through the forest. Next come the sankharas, the concoctions or fabrications, and that's depicted with a potter sitting at his wheel making pots, some of which are very nice and some are misshapen and broken. Then consciousness. This is a monkey swinging through the trees, grabbing first one branch and then another. You might have encountered this monkey mind at some point in the recent past. Then mind and body. That's two people in a boat. One is standing up and is pulling the boat along. The other is lying prone and is long for the ride. So which one's mind and which one's body? This is actually an important insight. This is a good investigation to do once your mind is very concentrated. Take a look at your body and your mind. Try and see how they function, where there's any overlap, how they interact, and most importantly, who's in charge. The one that's in charge is obviously pulling the boat along. The other one's along for the ride. So this is a very good insight investigation to do, a contemplation. Then come the six senses, which is depicted as a house that has five windows and a door, the five windows being the external senses, the door being mind. Then we have contact, a couple embracing. Vedna, that's depicted as a man having arrows shot into his eyes. Unpleasant Vedna. Then we have craving. That's an enormously fat person sitting at a table, heavily laden with food. Then we have clinging. That's someone picking fruit and putting it into baskets that are so full that the fruit, the new fruit actually just rolls out. Becoming a pregnant woman. Birth a woman with a newborn child, and death, a corpse. So how are we to interpret these links? Well, probably the most orthodox interpretation, and the one that's found in the Vasudhimaga, is interpreting these 12 links as covering three lifetimes. Your previous life is the ignorance and the sankharas, translated as karmic formations. So in your previous life, you were ignorant, and you behaved in such and such a ways, and that led to the consciousness and mind and body that you have in this life, which has senses, which receive contacts, which produce vedana, which, unless you're careful, produces craving and clinging. That's this life. And then your next life is becoming birth and death. And as I say, this is in the Vasudhimaga and would be the standard orthodox interpretation. However, there's a a serious flaw in this interpretation. There are many suttas where the Buddha says, with the ending of ignorance comes the ending of sankharas, with the ending of sankharas comes the ending of consciousness, with the ending of consciousness, the ending of mind and body, all the way up to with the ending of birth, the the ending of pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, and all the rest of the dukkha. 
So if you're going to get off the wheel, one way is to end ignorance. But ignorance is in your last life, right? So you got to go back to your last life and end the ignorance you had in that life. I think this is going to be a problem. I mean, you probably don't even remember your last life, yet let alone be able to go back there and change what happened there. I mean, you're having trouble ending your ignorance in this life, right? So there's a logical flaw, so I seriously doubt this is what the Buddha meant. There are suttas that would support a two-lifetime model. That is, everything from ignorance, sankaras, all the way up through the craving and clinging is this life, and becoming birth and death is your next life. However, I also doubt that that's what the Buddha meant. Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is one of the great Thai forest masters of the 20th century, has a very good book on dependent origination entitled Paticca It's not published in the West. If you want to read it, you'll need to order it from Thailand. The details for doing so are on the reading list on my website. But in that, he says that dependent origination occurs moment to moment. It's not something happening over multiple lifetimes. It's basically happening with every sense contact. I think this is a much closer interpretation to what the Buddha meant. I'll give you an example that will help elucidate what he's talking about. Let's assume you've never had a mango. Don't know what a mango tastes like. You've heard mangoes are good. So one day you're in the grocery store and you're in the produce section and there's a sign that says mangoes and there's a price underneath and there's these fruit, sort of orange looking, and you're like, mangoes, yeah, I heard about those. They're supposed to be good. So let's say you decide to buy a mango and you get a ripe one and you take it home. And so you figure, well, i got to peel it. So you peel it and, of course, make a big mess because that's what happens when you start in on a mango for the first time. And you get it cut away from the stone, and then you're like, okay, you've got a mind and body that's conscious. you got senses, and you pick up a piece of mango, and it hits the tongue. Contact. Vedna. Oh, pleasant Vedna. Oh, this is good. I'll have some more and some more. Craving. Clinging. Oh, my friends uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, they've never had mangoes. I'm going to turn them on to mangoes. So then you go back to the store, you buy another mango, you go see your friends, and you turn them on to mangoes. And they love it. This is great. You have become the mango bringer, right? So next time you go see your friends, you bring a mango, and they're like, oh, another mango, cool. And then you go see your friends, and you bring a mango, and they're like, What's with the mangoes? Uh Uh-oh, death of the mango bringer, right? So what Ajahn Buddhadasa is saying, that in each of our sense contacts, there's Vedana that's produced, potentially craving and clinging, and that gives birth to a sense of self, identifying you as someone, right? You are becoming someone. You give birth to yourself, but 
this self that you have given birth to, it's not a real solid self. You keep having to emote it up or think it up. And it has this tendency to die on you anytime somebody doesn't support your ego fantasy. Right? So you're having to do this birth of the ego because the death of the ego is happening all the time. So Ajahn Buddha Dasa basically is saying the birth that's taking place is the concept of self that needs to be done repeatedly. I think, as I said, this is much closer to what the Buddha was talking about, but I'm not even sure that that's correct. Often when we in the West try and understand dependent origination, we're looking at this and trying to come up with a linear explanation that fits the whole scheme. It turns out in the East, they weren't so big on linear explanations as we are in the West. And that trying to force a linear explanation out of all these links may not work. One of the early Buddhist translators, Carolyn Rice Davis, referred to dependent origination as this curious old rune. It just really doesn't work very well to try and come up with a logical explanation of all the links. I think it's because there's not a logical explanation linearly of all the links. I think what the Buddha is presenting here is perhaps a mnemonic device, a method for remembering some important necessary conditions. A necessary condition for the arising of death is that there previously have been a birth. A necessary condition for craving is that there was previously vedana, pleasant for craving for and unpleasant for craving for the absence of. A necessary condition for sense contact is that they're senses. Now, true, some of this does fit nice and linearly. Consciousness, mind and body, senses, sense contact, vedna, craving, clinging. But I don't think the whole thing fits together in a linear fashion. I just don't see an explanation that works. I've been trying to figure it out for a number of years. I've had it explained to me by lots of teachers. I've read stuff about it in the books. And if I'm honest, it's always a stretch. But if I look at it as just a collection of important, necessary conditions, things to keep in mind, then, yeah, it starts to make a lot of sense. Dependent origination occurs in the suttas in quite a large number of contexts. And what I'm going to do over the next couple of nights is talk about more of these various contexts. But I think probably the basic one is this middle section of we have a mind and body that has senses and there are sense contacts. This produces Vedna. This is not under our control. I mean, you don't want to get rid of your consciousness. You don't want to get rid of your mind and body. You don't want to get rid of your senses. After about six hours in a sensory deprivation tank, you start hallucinating. So you can't get rid of the contacts. Whenever there's a contact, it's going to produce a Vedana. It's not under your control. 
Oh, well, yeah, you can go into the state of Naroda, the cessation of feeling and perception, and then you won't have it, but <laughs> that's not going to do you any good. So if you're awake and alert and operating in the world, you're going to get all the way up through the Vedana. The key thing is to not let the craving arise. If you experience something pleasant, enjoy it. That's it. Don't crave it. Don't crave for it to last. Don't crave for it to come back. Just simply enjoy it. And when it goes away, if there's no craving, it's like, oh, that was good, and it's done. But too often when we get a pleasant Vedana, we want to grab hold of the source of that pleasant Vedana and keep it around. Make it ours so that we have a reliable source of pleasant Vedana. And if we get a source of unpleasant Vedana, we're craving for that to go away, and we're craving to keep it away so that we don't get any more unpleasant Vedana like that. The craving is sort of looking at the world as the objects out there and things I'm going to get or push away. And the clinging is more looking at the subject in here. This is my good thing that I got. Or this is my defense against these Vedana. So uh, sort of getting more intimate once it becomes the clinging. The craving is I want it. The clinging is I got it and I'm going to keep it because it's mine. And indeed, this does give birth to a sense of self. I mean, your self is the one who's doing the craving and clinging. But I think the key thing is to realize that what we've got to do on the short-term basis is have the mindfulness of the Vedana and not get caught in the craving and clinging. Just simply experience what's happening. If it's pleasant, then the right response is to enjoy it. And if it's unpleasant, the right response is to see if this is signaling something that needs to be taken care of and take care of it without having the craving and clinging aspect of it come up. I think I'm going to stop here tonight and see if there are any questions about sort of dependent origination in general. Right. So how can you how can you deal with planning for the future without having craving? Uh, you can make plans and not be attached to them coming true. In other words, there's no problem with planning. Uh, but you do have to be careful about making plans and then being upset if it doesn't unfold the way you wanted it to unfold. Consider all plans as provisional. 
right? So you're planning after this retreat to get in your car and drive home. And so you go out there and your car won't start. Your plans are now upset and you just have to deal with it. If you're craving that you're going to get out of here at 1.30 and your car won't start and you've got to deal with somehow getting it jumped and so forth, now you'll get all upset. But if you go out and your car won't start and you're like, oh, this is what I have to do next, then it's not a problem. So, yeah, it's fine to make plans. It's fine to think about possible futures. Just don't be attached. My favorite joke of all time, you know how to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. So, definitely, make plans. Be wise about making your plans, but don't, don't go clinging to your plans as a fixed view. Stay open to what's going to happen next. Correct. But you do prevent the death of the ego, right? Your body, yeah, it's going to do the aging, sickness, and death. I think we could go back to looking at dukkha. The, the best English word I know to translate dukkha is bummer. <laughs> you know, the old hippie slang word. Uh, I went to the beach, man, and I lost my sunglasses. Well, don't get all bummed out about it, right? So a bummer is something that bums you out. And it's you getting bummed out that's the problem. Okay? So when the Buddha said that he taught the end of dukkha, he didn't teach the end of aging, sickness, and death. I mean, he got old, sick, and died. His right-hand disciple got old, sick, and died six months before he did. His left-hand disciple, Mahamogalana, also died six months before he did. I mean, he wasn't able to prevent old age, sickness, and death. All that he could do was prevent getting bummed out by old age, sickness, and death. So what we're trying to do is prevent us having, shall we say, an adverse reaction when events that generate unpleasant Vedana occur. That's what the Buddha is basically teaching. He's not teaching a way to change how the world operates, but he's, cha- he's teaching a way so that you can change how you relate to how the world operates. That's the key thing. And the method for producing this change is the overcoming of craving. In other words, being willing to accept and deal with what has come up as opposed to craving for things to be other than they are. Now, like with the other question, the one just before, it doesn't mean that you have to sit back and passively accept whatever comes at you. It is possible and wise to make plans to see that things possibly can be done 
When you're attempting to do something, however, be clear about what you're trying to do and don't be attached to the results. The clarity about what you're trying to do would be, well, as Spike Lee put it, do the right thing. So you could use as your mantra for behavior is do the right thing, don't be attached to the results. If you can do that, the doing the right thing, that is leading a life that's letting go, that's loving and compassionate, will lead to less dukkha for you and the people you're interacting with. And if you're not attached to the results, then there won't be the craving there that's going to generate the bummers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The idea is to gain enough insight into the nature of reality that the craving doesn't arise because you understand that there's nothing worth craving. Um, let's say you go to the beach, a sandy beach, and you take a little kid with you. And you build a sandcastle, a really nice, elaborate sandcastle, big one, right? And then a wave comes along and wipes it out. Are you upset? Are you freaked out? The kid might be screaming, but you understand the nature of sandcastles. And so if it dies, if it gets washed away, you're not upset. You're not craving for the sandcastle to last. You're not thinking, oh, this is a magnificent sandcastle. We'll put it in the boot of the car and take it home. We'll put it on the dining room. No, you're not thinking that. You understand this is a temporary thing. You know, it'll be there for a while. You can enjoy it while it's there. And when it goes away, it's gone. I got news for you, folks. It's all sandcastles. <laughs> All right. Once you understand the sandcastle nature of reality, then the craving doesn't arise. Okay, so this is where the insight practice comes in. The insight practice of looking at reality and seeing that everything is in flux, nothing is going to provide lasting satisfaction, and in fact, at the deepest level, everything is coreless, empty. So the insight gets you to the point where the craving really, the, the impulse to crave really isn't there. But before you get there, if you pay attention to the Vedana and something nice happens and you just really try and enjoy it as opposed to keep it, then you can overcome the craving sometimes along the way. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. It it's it sometimes can be quite unpleasant to do the craving, but then also sometimes sometimes it can be kind of pleasant. When I was a kid, 
There is a company in America, a catalog sales company called Sears and Roebuck. And in November, they would send out the Christmas catalog. And the back pages of the Christmas catalog was the toy selection. I mean, there were more toys in that catalog than we had in the whole five-and-dime store in the town I grew up in. I mean, it was great. And so I'd find what I wanted, and I'd spend the next six weeks craving it and enjoying the craving in the anticipation of how I was going to get it. Of course, it never quite lived up to the ideas that I had. So sometimes the craving can be sort of an exciting, fun thing to do, and at other times it can be really quite miserable. So... Yeah, when it's the miserable craving, definitely investigate that and see, yeah, this is not this is not pleasant Vedana. I don't need to be doing this. Right, exactly. Right. You're you're lost in your fantasies of the future. Right, the, there can be craving for concepts and ideas as well. And it's pretty much the same. You have to recognize that, okay, maybe gaining this understanding or having this explained or whatever is a useful thing. And if it's happening, wonderful. And if it's not happening, you just have to let it go. Yeah. To realize that the fulfillment isn't guaranteed just because... It's an immaterial thing, and you want it. What about grief? Yeah, grief seems to be a necessary part of, shall we say, readjusting our mental apparatus after there's some loss. Uh, It's going to be prolonged and worse if it involves craving. In other words, someone dies that you love. And if you're craving for them to come back, and they're not going to be coming back, that's going to prolong the grieving process. The grieving process will still happen even if you don't crave. In other words, you realize they're gone and you do have to let go. But it takes a while to basically integrate that knowledge into your system to where it's not painful. And this is what we call the grieving process. But the less craving, the less wishing things are other than they are, the easier and faster the grieving process will occur. Yeah, the way that Goenka uses the word sankhara is, shall we say, a more limited way than it's used in the suttas. Uh, in the suttas, it refers to anything that's fabricated or concocted. I like concocted because it gives a sense that you're the one concocting it, and it's not quite real, not quite true, which, as we'll see when we look more at dependent origination, 
Yeah. I mean, this is a table, right? But actually, if you're a leprechaun, it's a bus shelter, right? We're concocting it as a table. We're ignoring the fact that it's actually some trees and somebody cutting down the trees and putting the trees into something like this. But it's definitely a concoction, a sankara. Goenka tends to use the word sankara to basically mean the the mental residue stored in your body from past events, and that the body scan can release this. Now, these are indeed an example of sankara, but it's only a very limited uh, view of what sankara incorporates. If you look around this room, everything you see is a concoction, is a fabrication. It's all created stuff. The people the statues, the cushions, all of this is a compounded thing, uh, a manufactured thing. The word sankara means to make or to put together. So all the things that are made is a more general way of looking at it. And to look at it in a, a more esoteric way, a way that sort of matches the opening of dependent origination, out of ignorance, we concoct the things that we're conscious of. Ignorance being the first of the links, sankhara, the concoctions being the second, and consciousness being the third. Consciousness requires an object, and what we're conscious of are the concoctions. So we're concocting this as a table in the sense that it's being made from trees, in the sense that we are taking this that is here and thinking of it as a table. I mean, if you desperately need firewood, it's firewood. Maybe there's a big flood and this is your life preserver. You know, I mean, it, it's not, it doesn't have tableness within it. It's empty of tableness. And it's only temporarily a table at that. I mean, it used to be trees. The pieces have come together. We're using it as a table. Eventually, it'll get worn out. It'll become firewood. It'll get burned. The carbon dioxide will go up into the atmosphere and be breathed in by trees again. So all of these concoctions are in flux and are changing to see the impermanent nature is one of the ways to prevent the craving. You know, if I think this table is going to bring me lasting happiness and it breaks, you know, then I'm going to experience dukkha. <clears throat>